Good afternoon and welcome once again to Rasslin' Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We are also streaming online live right in the moment at RadioNorthland.org and also the app for TuneIn. Yes, you can tune in right now. And if you just so happen to be out of town or something uh, went, you know, came up and you want to catch this episode, you know, if, if you miss it live, you got a chance to go to our archives at RadioNorthland.org forward slash Rasslin' Memories. Get to our page and it'll link you to our SoundCloud page. Five years of Rasslin' Memories interviews with some major, major stars of yesterday. Some are not with us today, but we do have a great guest here this week. Uh, my guest today is a legendary pro wrestling ring announcer who is best known for working with the WWWF, WWF, AWA, NWA, WCW, and countless other indie promotions uh, on the East Coast and scattered throughout the United States since making his debut in 1974 for Vince McMahon Sr., his autobiography, Body Slams, Memoirs of a Wrestling Pitchman, was very well received, and from there he has taken his show on the road quite literally here in 2017 uh, with his uh, just-launched multimedia stage show, Beyond Body Slams. And we are so fortunate that he is able to take some time to promote his latest endeavor and look back on portions of his career. It's an honor and a privilege to welcome to Rasslin' Memories, the world's most dangerous announcer, to quote Mr. Jim Cornette, our guest today, Mr. Gary Michael Capetta. Welcome to Rasslin' Memories in Northwestern Minnesota. Well, thank you. You've made me a little bit nervous when you said that um, with many of the stars from the past, uh, some aren't with us anymore. I hope this isn't some kind of a... Um, I, I want to be on this earth for a few more years. <laughs> oh, 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 no, no worries. The batting average is good as opposed to with our guests. So good, you're good, in good, 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 good. <laughs> well, welcome. That, 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 that puts me at peace. Oh, well, that's good to know. Welcome to Northwestern <laughs> Minnesota. And, 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 and did you ever have an opportunity, let's just start off, to ever work any events in the state of Minnesota? And if you didn't, what was the closest you got to our state? And if you did happen to, where did you end up uh, you know, doing some announcing gigs? Boy, that's a good question, because I've been to hundreds and hundreds of cities um, announcing their, uh, probably Minneapolis, I would think, uh, oh, for sure, I did the um, um, Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome. Oh, you were at Wrestle Rock, that's, if I, if I, I, if I stand corrected. the announcer at Wrestle Rock, yes. Yes, uh, that was a that was an exciting event. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what a, and at the time too, that was uh, you know knee deep in the uh, big territory battles when McMahon was in the midst of his big cross country swamp of uh, taking out some of the uh, the older promoters. This was one of those kind of like the original super clash, which was kind of almost like a companion piece with these big shows that were uh, a melting pot of many different stars. And that that card, when you look back at it, had so many Hall of Fame guys and so many. Just people on the card, period. You know, I wonder what the the running budget must have been for that show because they flew in a lot of different people from what I can remember. I can't imagine what the rent was. <laughs> <laughs> forget, forget about the talent. But, yeah, that was a transition period for me. I had just completed 11 years with the McMahon family, and um, Vern Gagne had asked me to... Um, he had gotten an opportunity to uh, for a time slot on ESPN, mm-hmm. and at the time especially, pro wrestling on a legitimate sports station like ESPN 
it was incredible. What an incredible opportunity for the promotion. And they began the program in Atlantic City at the Tropicana. So I'm New Jersey-based, and um, I announced um, all of the shows for the ESPN broadcast out of um, Atlantic City mm-hmm. before they moved the show to Las Vegas. Um, so, and then I worked um, some East Coast shows for Vern Gagne, and he brought me in for two pay-per-views. Uh, one was Super Clash in, I think it was Super Clash 3 in Chicago, mm-hmm. and the other was Wrestle Rock in uh, um, at the Metrodome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you didn't have a, you know, thankfully, because we, we see this in the time capsule every so often on social media, uh, you know, what was I think you were pretty lucky that you weren't on the Wrestle Rock Rumble rap. Uh, that was probably one gig that you uh, probably were probably good that you bowed out or didn't have a chance to participate in. That's true. I, I would have said that um, I, I would not have been good, but nobody was good on that. <laughs> on that uh, commer- it was a commercial, right? It was a, um, a bunch of people who had no sense of musical timing trying to rap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the funny thing about that, Gary, was the guy that actually probably did the best job and I'm not saying that this was just some high bar stuff here, he was going to get signed to Def Jam at any time, was uh, Nick Bockwinkle. Interesting. I, I, you know, something that was that bad, I quickly forgot. Mm-hmm. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. What else do you remember from the Wrestle Rock show? Because I, what I remember, you know, being a young kid growing up in AWA country up here, you know, was I was a little bit confused. We'll talk about the card itself, but I was a little bit confused when uh, Wrestle Rock had Waylon Jennings as its headliner. And I know, you know, Waylon Jennings went down the road a time or two, one of the great outlaws, country guys in the business and country. You can consider outlaw country almost rock and roll, but the fact remains at that point in the mid-1980s, Waylon wasn't exactly uh, running roughshod with Willie and the boys. He was still gaining some good, uh, a good following, but really, though, for, for a thing called Wrestle Rock and for the time that Vern really could have been poised to bring in an act uh, that uh, may have connected to the youth a little bit more, uh, that, that kind of like gave me a hint of just a little how to step that Vern could be on certain things. And I know in your book, you've tackled some of the, you know, when you talked about the Tropicana days uh, from your limited contact with Vern about, and you kind of got the gist of just how out of step he, he, he ended up being towards the end of his run with, you know, with the AWA in the big shadow of McMahon expansion. Yeah. I didn't understand that either to tell you the truth. Um, I think you're referring to an episode from the book where, um, the early days of the ESPN show, they, they, they just weren't going well. Um, the Tropicana was not happy um, with us, first of all, because um, it was a weeknight show. It was, the families would come, and they would have spotters at the exits, and they wanted to see where the wrestling fans went at the end of the event. Of course, they wanted them to go to the gaming tables, um, but these were families, and there was school the next morning. So people would come out, they'd go to the wrestling, and they'd go back to the parking garage, and they would go home mm-hmm. so kids can get to bed so they could get up in the morning for school the next day. So Tropicana wasn't happy with us. ESPN, um, I guess, you know, this I don't know firsthand, but um, I, I, I guess the, the show started slowly. And um, after one of the tapings, um, Vern came up to me and he asked me, um, like, what do you think of the show? 
And I wasn't too high on what we were doing. And, um, but, you know, so I had to be really careful because, you know, here's the boss and he's asking me what I think of the product that he has created. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I just uh, danced a little bit and then I, I said to him, so Vern, what about you? What do you think? And he just paused and he looked at me and he said, I've never seen the show. We don't have cable where I live. Oh, Wow. And so, and now we're talking about a guy who had um, a, a really nice TV studio. Um, he had, you know, full-time personnel in there. And at any time, they could have run the show for him. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that kind of gives you uh, a clue. But it, maybe it was just as well. Maybe the demographic that they were trying to draw, maybe those are the folks that he should have sat down in front of monitors played the show for them, and then done um, a discussion group afterwards, a focus group to see, you know, what kids were thinking. You know, in, now, he had incredible talent. He had incredible wrestling talent. He had Nick Bockwinkle and Larry Zbysko and the Road Warriors and Stan Hansen and Jimmy Garvin and Rick Martell. Um, the Freebirds were there, too. The Freebirds were there, too. I mean, he had... Uh, an incredible roster of wrestlers. Um, Sergeant Slaughter was in, um, but um, he just wasn't accustomed to competing. At this point, he needed to compete with um, with Vinnie McMahon. And um, for as terrific as AWA wrestling was in the cities where Vern promoted, he never had competition. And he never had to counter-program. So he gave his fans terrific wrestling with the AWA. But he was never faced with a competitor. So I just think he was a man of his element. And, um, yeah, and, and there, shortly thereafter, came the downfall of um, the AWA as the McMahons began to siphon off their talent, started to take over their TVs, move into the... Um, arenas where the AWA um, promotion had had run shows for years. So before he knew it, um, his business had slipped away from him. And I have to ask, you know, it was just before AWA ended up on ESPN with a, a major deal and major exposure. Uh, previous months, you know, and of course, was was the super, first Super Clash show, and before that was the an attempted consortium of talent and uh, and 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 promoters that was kind of this big salvo that was going to be the big blast that was going to rattle McMahon a little bit. And it was uh, the Pro Wrestling USA project. Now, when you were coming out of uh, your your stint uh, working. For for Vince Senior, and then later with with Vinny here, Vince Junior, you made your way out, and you were you were heading towards this idea. Who who came? Did you approach them, the AWA, or what, how did you get end up getting involved with with that project? Uh, because what became Pro Wrestling U or AWA Pro Wrestling USA, it was a great project, but it, it just you know nobody could get on the right page as far as the promoters and what did you think about the idea of of the AWA Pro Wrestling USA coming into the East Coast at that time and and booking some of the shows kind of you trying to use that old formula of hitting the spots that the WWF now didn't because they were a bigger entity world countrywide yeah um the problem was that um the two main promoters 
uh, Jim Crockett uh, Jr. and Vern Gagne, they they didn't work toward one goal. They were still working to their the betterment of their own promotions. So they had you know differing ideas as to what should be featured. Um, each one wanted to put over their own promotion. But that being said, um, it was yeah they had teamed up. The idea was to come to the Northeast, where, which was the WWF stronghold, and uh, since uh, the McMahons were invading their territories, these promoters were going to invade the McMahons' territories. They were going to in- invade the WWF. Well, now that McMahon was going to larger cities all across the country, he couldn't run all of the towns, the, the secondary towns that he ran in the Northeast. He still ran New York and Philly and Pittsburgh and Boston and D.C. and Baltimore, etc. But there were many secondary towns that he just didn't have the personnel for at the time. So that's where they went. And the promoters, the local contacts in those secondary cities were contacted by the Pro Wrestling USA people. So they were told... Um, to you know, line up their announcer. So each one of them called me um, since I was no longer with the WWF, and that was how I transitioned. Um, at that, that gave me the exposure to Jim Crockett and his promoter Vern Gagne and his people. So they saw my work, and then there were not a lot of large arenas in the Northeast where they could um, they could present Pro Wrestling USA. For instance, Madison Square Garden was closed to them um, for a long time. So was Boston Garden, Pittsburgh, because the McMahons had those buildings tied up. Um, the Meadowlands was one place where they could go. Um, Baltimore was one place they could go. New Haven was one place they could go. And so they started using me in those larger um, venues, and that just transitioned me as the AWA began to fade. It transitioned me into the NWA, which then was bought by Ted Turner, which uh, brought me to WCW full-time and full-time contract. So that's, that, was the, that was the transition process for me. Mm-hmm. And the AWA really, really seemed to, uh, you know, at, at the in, the beginning of this, really wanted to make a go out in the East Coast because not only, uh, you know, did they have, like we talked about the TV deal, but they had some guys that were familiar to audiences uh, in that part of the country uh, in the form of Bob Backlund and, and Sergeant Slaughter. So, you know, at, at initially they probably thought they might have had, would have had a good chance with the, with these guys. I mean, considering their, uh, you know, past, you know, affiliation with, with McMahon and what they, they drew in main event in previous years but it really wasn't to be I mean Sarge had his gig with the AWA but it just didn't really pan out with Bob Backlund yeah and and Rick Martell was their champion at the time oh great so he was well known to WWF um, fans in fact he lost his world championship to Stan Hansen at the Meadowlands in New Jersey Um, so yeah and both of those um, both of those wrestlers you know, had had uh, familiarity with the WWF fans. 
And I want to talk. Let's go back because we got into the AWA uh, chat a little bit, and, and we kind of went uh, a little bit uh, further ahead. But I wanted to talk about why we have you on as well is to talk about your stage show, Beyond Body Slams. And uh, yeah, you you've definitely uh, have taken your book and magnified it with the stage show. And what made you decide to basically, you know, kind of expand upon what you put in print, create this show? And start taking it on on the road, and you know, getting this. Uh, it has to be a pretty decent reaction from what I've been reading online. What was the, the the reason? What got you in motion to get this idea off the ground as far as the stage show? It was it was twofold. Um, I created the show when um, the self published version of my book Body Slams first came out. So that was um, in two thousand to two thousand two. I created the show um, for two reasons. One was to promote the book. The second reason was to provide um, a more entertaining format for wrestling fans um, who wanted to, you know, learn about what goes on behind the scenes in wrestling. So this was before Mick Foley was touring and and Jim Ross was was doing his one man show. This this was way way before any of that started. And what I do is very different from what they do. Um, Mick Foley does a, a comedy act, and uh, JR is a question and answer forum, um, which I have as my encore at the very end of the night. But this is a loosely scripted um, journey through 40 years of my wrestling broadcasting career and life. And it's a celebration of being a wrestling fan, it's very interactive. I come into the audience um, early on. I want to know from the fans, how did you find your way to wrestling? How were you introduced to pro wrestling? Um, and then I share my story. And as I'm telling the story, um, overhead, there's rare giant screen video that's playing so that you not only are listening to the story, but you're also looking at the episodes that I'm telling you about. Um, and I take you through my 11 years with the McMahons. Um, I pay tribute to Gorilla Monsoon, who was my mentor and the reason that I had any career in wrestling. Um, we go on to the NWA, and I have some rare backstage footage of a great American bash tour in the, in the locker rooms. Um, we, have, uh, we, we break for an intermission. Then we come back with memories of World Championship Wrestling, WCW, um, pay-per-views and Clash of the Champions. Um, I talk a little bit about what happened behind the scenes at some of those events. Um, then I talk about the um, two of the most notorious incidents that I happened to be in the center of. One was the Arn Anderson-Sid Vicious scissor fight in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And the other was the night Mick Foley lost his ear in Munich, Germany, when the referee tossed it to me. And um, that was a non-televised event, but I have rare footage of that match from a fan uh, in Germany who smuggled in a camcorder and caught the entire match on tape. Oh, so wow. we'll take a look. You know, People will see exactly where it was when the ear came off of his head, and you'll see the referee bend down and pick it up and, and give it to me. And, and I tell what happened leading up to that match, what condition 
mix ear was in before we started. And what I did when I went backstage, which was immediate, um, and uh, presented the ear to Ric Flair. <laughs> you know, so, so there are things that, that people have never um, you know, heard about before unless they've read the book. Um, but I'm also showing you the video so you can see what's going on. So this fall, I have six cities starting uh, this coming Friday, Friday the 13th. We're in uh, Conyers, Georgia, right outside of Atlanta. And then the next night, we're in Tampa, Florida. That's the 14th of October. Next afternoon in Orlando, that's the 15th. Then uh, Asbury Park, New Jersey, which is a special show for me because it's Asbury Park is the first place as a little boy that I um, ever witnessed wrestling live. So Asbury Park is October 28th. Then we go out to Louisville, Kentucky on November the 4th. And New York City, Queens, New York on Veterans Day, November the 11th. So I'll be uh, traveling with the show. Uh, there are costume changes. It's loosely scripted. Um, but no show is ever exactly the same as the previous one. Um, so it's fun. You know, I have, a, I have a great time. It's a joy to do. Now, with all the big, uh, you know, in the last 10 or so years, there's really has been a big surge of uh, wrestling conventions. Some good, some otherwise, but they're there. Uh, have, you been, have you been able to kind of work the circuit as well uh, with the wrestling conventions? And from there, have you had any cameos through the years for your show from maybe some of the guys that may be around uh, for maybe your area of discussion for that evening? Um, I have. Um, very, the very first time I did the show, George the Animal Steel was my guest. Um, and there will be, uh, there will be guests this uh, in these six cities coming up. Um, we haven't announced who they are yet, so uh, I, I can't share that with you right now. Uh, there are certain things that are being confirmed, but we'll have a surprise in every city um, along the tour this fall. Um, and, and I want to mention that this is an updated version, um, so that it, the show was created and the concept was created back when the book came out, but I've updated everything. Um, and I also pay tribute, part of the show, to uh, independent wrestling and, and the men and women that are training and the importance of independent wrestling as uh, the future of pro wrestling. Um, you, know, I, you know, I also worked with Ring of Honor as a backstage interviewer, and that was only uh, about 15 years ago. And just 15 years ago, when I look back and I, I think about who the the who was on the roster and where they've been since then. We're talking about Daniel Bryan. We're talking about CM Punk, Samoa Joe, Cesaro, AJ Styles, Colt Cabana, so many, um, Nigel McGuinness, so many of the, uh, the roster of Ring of Honor. And these were guys that were, you know, indie wrestlers. And, and look at the heights that they've achieved in just 10 to 15 years. It's, it's amazing. So uh, wrestling fans need to get out and support their independent promotions. It's, it's very important. And you've seen plenty of sea changes since you uh, started your career in, in pro wrestling. Uh, you, you were around and got a chance to uh, have a pretty uh, fair amount of years uh, in what was the decline of the kayfabe era in the, uh, the territory system. And uh, you know, from, from, from the kayfabe era... I guess. Uh, 
I don't know. What do you think? You know, we have definitely went through some changes. We went through some fads through the years. You know, we've had the attitude era. We've had the era of extreme. We've had other things. What is your current take on, you know, for all the years you've watched wrestling, are you still watching it from afar? Do you have opinions on what the product is uh, and where it has gone in the last 15, 20, even 30 years? Uh, Your thoughts on on, on the current state of, of pro wrestling here? Because, you know, you have on one hand, you have the World Wrestling Federation, but they've also seen, again, we talked about convention. Conventions. With conventions, too, has been a rise of a lot of uh, more of the independent wrestlers, the independent wrestling leagues that have popped up throughout the country in the last uh, few years. What, what, what is your take? Well, the WWE of today is not geared to, it's not designed to elicit the same kind of reaction as old school wrestling was. So they do a very good job with what they do. Um, I don't prefer what they do. Um, it's um, it's marketed to. They're looking for this uh, an arena reaction. They're looking for everyone to chant the same thing at the same time. They're looking for more of a concert atmosphere, um, more of a festival atmosphere. When when the WWE comes to a city near you, usually you don't know what the matches are going to be. You have a list of wrestlers, but it doesn't seem to matter who is wrestling whom. You're going to see celebrities. So that's very different from the days when you wanted to see what would happen when Ric Flair... Um, and Lex Luger locked up because of what you've seen on television and that rivalry, and 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 this is the like the the cage match or you know the final the final stance for both. There's, there was a lot of drama that was created on television. Now it's more reality TV. Um, there are there are rest, and and it is not the performers fault. The WWE performers are excellent, including and especially the women's division. They're simply doing what they're told to do, where their um, their verbiage on their promos um, is scripted. And, and sometimes it's it just doesn't come across as being heartfelt. Um, and there is too much talking. Um, the art of the game, which is what I talk about in my book, Body Slams, is the art of communicating with your audience on the mat, not on the mic. It's not supposed to be where you tune in and you're being told a story. It's not supposed to be uh, an oral history or an oral um, communication. It's supposed to be visual. And when it's visual, and, and you have a sense that what is happening is real, then you're going to respond with your gut and with your heart. When you have a, an arena filled with people and everyone is pumping their fist at the same time and chanting the same thing, that's cerebral. That's not coming from you as an individual. You're not reacting um, naturally. It's all synthetic, but that's what the WWE wants. 
So that's, they, they do a very good job at accomplishing what their goal is. Once again, it just doesn't happen to be what I think is the most um, satisfying experience for a wrestling fan, and, um, and it takes away from the art of the game. We're talking with Gary Michael Capetta, the world's most dangerous announcer, author of Body Slams, Memoirs of a Wrestling Pitchman. And uh, also, he has the Travel and Road Show on the road, but beyond Body Slams. And uh, we're, I'm going to get back into uh, some present-day talk. We, we, we mentioned about the product with WWE and, and just the general psychology and the direction of wh- where, what they're doing with their wrestling. It is uh, in the last few months, and it, just recently this week, actually, and it became official, Billy Corgan, musician, uh, has uh, taken over the reins of what is uh, left of the National Wrestling Alliance. Now, the NWA, back when you got started with the WWF way back when, had a little more cachet, a little more presence, and, and just a lot more influence. Here in 2017, where does the, the NWA, where will that figure in moving on? And now with Billy Corgan, and from what I've read, it sounds like he has a, a, an idea of what he wants for his vision of the company, but the NWA name, I, it, what, where does it stand in 2017, at least in your eyes? I mean, you've seen this name basically rise and fall and try to rise again a couple of times rather unsuccessfully. Yeah, I mean, the NWA um, at its height um, was, you know, a worldwide, the most respected organization. Um, and the WWF was, uh, uh, or WWWF was a member of the NWA. Um, so their champion traveled around the world defending his title. Um, I do not know what uh, Mr. Corgan's vision is. And I, so therefore, I, I don't know um, how he, you know, how he plans on going about achieving the vision that he has. So I'm at a loss for predicting what might happen. Um, in my opinion, with New Japan Pro Wrestling, Ring of Honor, Evolve, um, the more um, strong promotions that we have. The, uh, the richer the wrestling environment is for both the fans and for the wrestlers. Um, the more alternatives that we have, um, the better. So, um, and I, I should have included impact in that too. So um, I wish him well. Um, I, of course, you know, as I've stated, my, my uh, preference is a hard-hitting, realistic product um, where fans react viscerally. And I hope that would be the direction that he would go, and I hope that he has a platform to, um, to display you know, his, his uh, promotion. Um, cause, because if people can't see it, and, and, and that is an advantage you know, with uh, the Internet and the iPay-per-views, um, so that you don't have to be on broadcast television to um, to make an impact on uh, on wrestling and to and to gain followers, so um, you know in the past years and years ago that you know we didn't have the um, that advantage. So I, I wish him well because um, I love watching um, guys like Cody Rhodes, for instance. Um, he is democratizing 
the wrestler-promoter relationship. Um, He did not have to leave the WWE. He had a very, um, while it wasn't remarkable and it wasn't, didn't stand out, it wasn't outstanding, it was a very cushy, comfortable place to be. Um, But he decided that he wasn't fulfilled in his, um, professionally, and against most odds, he went out and made a name for himself so that he became in demand. Um, and he was not controlled by any corporation. He's recently, um, as you must know, uh, decided to sign with Ring of Honor. But even with that signing, he maintains a certain degree of autonomy. And that only can be good for all wrestlers. Um, young bucks would be in that category. Um, independent wrestlers that can travel the world and make a living and gain notoriety if and when they might have a desire to work with the WWE, the negotiating process is more on equal footing. In fact, the WWE may be seeking these guys out, which is totally the reverse of how things were just five years ago. It, so I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled with, you know, with this uh, happening, with this evolution. And the thing with Cody, Cody Rhodes is I think this was just the best move for, you know, and it's worked out so well for him, but it also gives him more seasoning outside of the WWE bubble where a lot of, the, you know, what it's been with, with the training center and the NXTs and all of this, they get trained to a certain style. Whereas you have guys that usually end up from the indie circuit going in to the WWE, you had the reversal with Cody and the way that Cody marketed himself, the opponents that he had on his wish list, and the way he parlayed that both successfully in New Japan as well as, as Ring of Honor, this almost harkens back to the days of the uh, the rambling, wrestling, mercenary kind of, you know, not exactly stylistically in the ring, but simil- some similarities, I guess, uh, with the guys like the Stan Hansons and the, and the Bruiser Brodies of days gone by that were able to travel across the country and the world, had their connection with promoters. Sometimes they'd homestead for a while, but for the most part, these guys were the true independent contractors that would go all over internationally and in the United States. Right, but you probably can't name five of them. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, it's, it was so rare. It was so it's it was so rare to be able to make a name for yourself without a corporation behind you. So, I mean, those were there might be I can think of maybe three or four. Um, back in the day, mm-hmm. where uh, wrestlers that were able to you know travel from from place to place. I mean, these young guys even have their merchandise in in uh, you know brick and mortar sports stores. I mean, they're, they're making a killing, and and it's it's wonderful. It's 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 I you know I um, the last time that Cody and I were in the same building, he was probably four or five years old. So um, I, I had an opportunity to reunite with him uh, a few months ago, and we were reminiscing about his his father. And you know, I was talking about the last time that I had seen Dusty, which was uh, uh, an appearance that he had made in Ring of Honor. And, you know, we were talking. He's, he's just uh, such a gentleman. He shows up at at, at shows in a three piece suit. He's very professional. He's just. Um, 
uh, he says he said to you'll like this. He said to me, uh, this is like new school, old school. He said to me, uh, Gary. He said, I, you know, let me give you my 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 cell number. Uh, anytime you need anything, you know, just let me know. And I just like looked at him blankly because I have a flip phone. <laughs> I, <don't... laughs> I said to him, Cody. I said I wouldn't even know how to enter that. Oh, give that to me. And he, you know, he put his number in my phone for me. Um, so just a, a nice down-to-earth guy, and he's got a lot going for him, and, and he'll be... I, I said to him, you know, your dad is is smiling down at you. He's just, he, you know... I mean, I know that he's proud of um, all of his children, but this move that he's made where he's um, he's grabbed the wrestling world by its tail and has more control, um, it's it's just terrific. You know, in a dream booker, a forever optimistic way, you would think if, if the thing, if the shifts and the moves were right and the alignment was good, you know, Cody would be such a, a great, you know, if, if, the, if Corrigan had some serious might uh, behind an NWA sort of, you know, bringing it back to prominence, you know, working out, trying to get some territories. God, you would think if once he was out of an ROH contract or maybe worked in you know, counter negotiating or did some sort of deal with uh, with uh, Corrigan that what a great representative he would be for a while as an NWA champion, because like you said, when he travels, he dresses like a champion does. I mean, he's in the suits. He's he's someone who respects the business and he respects the, the audience for which are paying him to come out and see him do his thing. Absolutely. Um, it it reminds in the in the old uh, WWF days sort of reminded me of Pedro Morales. Uh, when he was the uh, well, it wasn't just when he was the champion. When whenever he came to an arena, he was always well dressed. Vern Gagne was always well dressed too. Um, um, just you know, always looked like a million bucks. And uh, Ric Flair in the same way. So it's uh, it, it's making a statement. I want to talk about a little bit about the NWA. Uh, you know, the, let's go back in the time machine. You talked about uh, Dusty briefly uh, as we, we were talking about Cody. I want to talk about the NWA, and a, I guess we could say you have a Minnesota connection, although he probably hasn't lived there in a while. I want to talk about getting into the NWA and also uh, meeting up and connecting with a guy that uh, had a good impact on your, your broadcasting uh, career post-WWF. I want to talk about you and how you hooked up the NWA and Gary Juster. Where does this all kind of figure out? Ah, Gary Jester. Um, when I told you earlier that I started to um, announce for in the secondary cities for Pro Wrestling USA, mm-hmm. Gary Jester was the representative of both Crockett and Ganya in this area. So um, we developed a, a friendship, um, which you know lasts to this day. Um, Gary's. Um, he now works with Ring of Honor, um, and he was he was instrumental in opening doors to um, 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 to to uh, Baltimore in um, gaining um, TV exposure, um, selling the product, um, and then up in Meadowlands and then in New Haven. Um, <clears throat> Gary is another um, example of um, if you want to put your best foot forward and you want to send a classy representative to represent your promotion, Gary Jester's the guy. Um, He was then an executive for all, I believe, all of um, WCW years. 
from the beginning to the very end. Um, he's he's had an incredible career in wrestling. Um, yeah, and I, I always have had a lot and continue to have a lot of respect for Gary. And you're, you're moving into to the NWA. Uh, uh, you know what? A, what an interesting uh, you know venue it was. Uh, not only with the guys that were on the roster, but we're talking about the front office people and the owners. And I want to talk about the time you got in with with you know, with Gary Juster, and you were started to do gigs uh, in the East Coast. Uh, Jim Crockett was very much uh, still at the helm uh, with Dusty doing the booking. Uh, what do you remember early on meeting up with Jim Crockett and, and Dusty? You know, as you switched to this bigger, co- you know, to this you now the second biggest company in the world at the time behind McMahon. Uh, what was it like meeting those guys, and what was the differences with you know Jimmy Crockett as say maybe a Vince Senior or even even a Vinny 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 Junior? I didn't have um, too much of an interaction with uh, Jim Crockett. Um, Dusty was always, um, he was always fun to be around. Um, he, when he was, um, in charge at WCW and we would have our production meetings, he, um, um, he would always keep things light. He would always, there was, there was never any kind of like tyrannical, um, side to him in any, any way. Um, and I think that when you're dealing with um, a room full of professionals, the producer, the director, the announcer, the commentators, um, and, and you're dealing with people who are at the top of their game, he knew enough that um, he didn't have to beat us over the head with what needed to be done. And I think he got so much more out of us. Um, I, for one, had so much more of a feeling of a team spirit and, 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 and wanting everything to succeed um, and wanting everyone to succeed. And, uh, yeah, Dusty was just, uh, he was a showman. He was a terrific um, um, motivator. And um, I always appreciated uh, working, you know, with him. He was, he was great. Now, how would you compare, you know, with with Dusty, you know, and of course, part of the Crockett arm? Uh, what was that? That this the, another talking about the, uh, the the concurrent theme of sea changes when things started to shift a little bit. It, it, the motion started to move when Crockett bought out Bill Watts and the UWF, and then with that big purchase, it seemed like the money was really the it was the bottom was essentially falling out as far as Crockett's end of the deal because really with the Watts deal, it seemed great on paper with some of the talent, but I think it was a case of them, you know, spending way too much money to spread themselves out too thin and really what ended up besides just the T V that did they get out of the UWF? There was a, maybe a handful of stars that you know, they they could have done a lot more with what they did, but I think there was just way too many distractions at the time with, uh, you know, with them being in Dallas and a few other things, too, that kind of hampered that uh, UWF-Crockett deal and basically put Crockett on the way to heading out the door out of the pro wrestling business for a while. Yeah, I think there's a tendency when you incorporate another organization into yours that your stars are your um, favorite talent. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, they could have um, they could have blended the two locker rooms um, on, on a more equal footing, to, and it would just make sense too. I mean, um, business-wise, to um, create stars and to 
um, enhanced the, the star power that uh, was brought by Bill Watts' locker room, especially in the, in the um, his, you know, his territory cities. Um, and that, did, that didn't happen. Um, yeah, and I don't, I can't tell you why. Um, we just know what happened and, you know, we could, we saw the results of it. Mm-hmm. And of course that being ending up uh, with, with Crockett, uh, selling, selling, uh, you know, the, the territory, basically Jim Crockett promotions and in the course of the UWF. And of course he had bought another, uh, smaller promotions down in Florida and had everything under control. But this is when the Ted Turner era started and, yeah, you know, you th- when you saw that, when I saw the news about Ted Turner taking over, I thought, you know, I saw a lot of the good and the bad, and I still see that because it wasn't necessarily, again, it was a case of bringing in these these people, this whole different angle, because Turner was not a pro, I mean, Turner, as much as he loved pro wrestling and supported it on his channel because it brought great ratings, the guys that he worked with him in the corporate structure they weren't exactly the biggest pro wrestling fans. So when they got this in, and even some of the decisions they made right away, uh, you know, with some of their front office, it just seemed like there the transition, it went from like the sinking ship to jumping into another just, I guess, almost potential black hole, you know, for a while with, with guys coming in and out of that head book or, uh, you know, talent relation spots uh, in the higher ups there. Yeah, the, the, the corporation of CNN... Um, they were embarrassed to have a wrestling product as um, part of their team, and they didn't ever considered us part of their team. Um, there were there were so many um, promotional um, opportunities that we were shut out of. That if we were given um, equal footing with the Hawks and the Braves and CNN and TBS and, um, you know, the other networks of, uh, under the Turner umbrella at the time, um, you know, we would have gotten much more mileage. We would have been, um, well, we, we could have dwarfed the WWF at the time as far as exposure goes, you know, with all of those legitimate um, outlets that, that Turner controlled, but that just never happened because we were undermined at every turn um, because we simply uh, were not welcomed um, in the Turner um, organization. So you felt that, definitely felt that evident uh, cold shoulder uh, with, with corporate. You know, it was around that time you were working with, with the NWA, soon to you know, develop into the WCW, but it was around the late 80s. You had taken some, I guess, some side jobs, and you had the dubious distinction of unfortunately being the ring announcer. We're going to go back to the AWA here, and I know this, this one way too well. This story has been told many times, and I lived at the AWA's sad flop of a pay-per-view Let's go back to the UIC Pavilion, Chicago, for Super Clash 3. Now, this was an event that not only ended up being a big flop on pay-per-view, but it also, uh, I guess you, you, you may have, uh, let's say, not made a lot of friends uh, with a certain, or made nice with a certain guy in the office at uh, NWA, WCW? Oh, um, yes. Um, when, uh, when I was doing the, the pay-per-views, and I only did two for the AWA. Um, Jim Hurd, who was the executive vice president of World Championship Wrestling. Now, I also was doing their pay-per-views. 
Um, in fact, there was a time when I worked for the NWA, the AWA, and the WWF all at the same time. Um, didn't you know? Didn't last long um, because um, I I didn't think that was uh, a good career move for me. Um, but when Jim Hertz watched the uh, AWA pay per view, he was uh, annoyed that I was the ring announcer, and he had sent word to me that. Um, I was his ring announcer, and uh, meaning for WCW, and uh, I should not appear on anyone else's pay-per-view events. And um, I thought that was kind of strange. <laughs> so I <laughs> a little bit. And I, you know why he couldn't call me and tell me? I, well, yeah. Before we, after it's all said and done, and say, hey, hey, I saw you on a pay-per-view, which he must have been one of the twelve that bought it. Yeah. So. Uh, I sent word back through his channel that he, you know, that um, he had no standing to tell me where I could announce because I was not under contract to WCW. And if he expected that I was going to sit home when I had an opportunity to, um, to practice my craft and to make a really nice payday, um, that he would need to put me under contract. And that would be the only way that I would be exclusive to him. And that is why I eventually um, was offered a contract with WCW, because I was announcing for everyone else, and I, w- I refused to stop unless... Um, I mean, I mean if, if he wanted me to be loyal to him, he needed to be loyal to me. And um, it was kind of a... Considering um, I did not have a future with the WWF, it was kind of a bold response to him. But I just, uh, just thought, ah, this is, this is fair. I mean, what my response to him is is fair. And if he doesn't see it that way, then I probably don't want to work for him anyway. Um, so yeah, that's how I. Um, th- that message was sent to me. Um, early spring, late winter of uh, 1989, and I was under contract in September. We negotiated over the summer, and um, that was the first time that I worked in wrestling. It was on the road full time. Up until then, I was in the classroom. I was teaching um, in New Jersey, and I was I was doing my announcing on the side. Mm-hmm. So that was the, that was a, a major step for me. And if it wasn't for Ted Turner buying the NWA, I probably would have never left teaching. Um, but I just felt that it was a major corporation and um, it was more of a, a secure and, and solid um, place to land. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm grateful that I made that decision. And, and, and in your book, too, and I, I, I got to say, uh, probably in your stage show, I have not seen your show yet. You had to have uh, brought up a few times about uh, that you didn't like you did in your book about some of the traveling uh, missions or, you know, the people that you travel with in your cars uh, through through the years uh, during your run uh, with WCW. I mean, you got to be in with guys <laughs> and some interesting travel partners. You've had flair and, you know, riding shotgun. You are in the backseat in the, in the case. You've, you've driven with me and Mark and you've had some interesting times with Ron Simmons and Two Cold Scorpio. Oh man, you you must have really had some interesting stuff. I mean, you've captured a couple of stories in the book about your traveling and also your shopping, I might add. But yeah, it must have been some interesting life, uh, you know, being that full time employee, you know, hitting out some of those shows along along the loop. 
and with some of the guys in the on the whether in shotgun or in the back seat. I knew that um, um, that I wouldn't last if I was forced to um, to partner up in a car with the same guys all the time. I just know myself, and I just knew that that would be like claustrophobic to me. So um, one of um, the tenets of my agreement throughout my years with WCW was that I uh, I was allowed to rent my own car. Well, they, well, they paid for it, but I, I had my own car, and um, I traveled alone. Um, usually at that time, you needed three wrestlers or referees um, in a car for the company to pay for it. So I was alone, and as I went through the years, every once in a while I would say to uh, someone, hey, you, you want to ride with me on this loop? So therefore I had a, a variety of partners, Mick Foley, The Undertaker, Steve Austin, um, uh, Ron Simmons, um, Dutch Mantel, and it made it more interesting to me. Um, and most of the time, you know, I just liked sailing along the roads on my own. And I would, that, that's that's when I do my thinking. I love being on the road. So when I do this, the stage tour, um, the stage show tour that I'm that I'm about to do starting on Friday, um, because I carry stage props and equipment, and um, I carry a sound system. I count uh, my merchandise. I have to drive to um, to all of these shows. So I'll be driving to Atlanta and Tampa, Orlando, Louisville, et cetera. Um, and I love it. I love to drive. I'm a road warrior. I love to drive, and and I just get lost in my thoughts. And if I, if you really have to push and it's the middle of the night and you're getting a little bit weary, um, the answer to that is either country music or um, talk radio because they, they, tell, they tell you stories, so they keep you interested. <laughs> <laughs> I was just but going I to love. ask you how, you how you get along as far as what's uh, you know, on your radio or, or in your, your CD player or your MP3. So you, you, you shedded some light on what keeps uh, you from becoming the world's most dangerous driver. <laughs> yeah, the you know, country music always tells you a story. So, you know, and, and then talk radio, um, you know, it's just something to tune into. And sometimes, you know, if you, if you think of, um, if you take your, your average day, there are very few times where you're not talking to someone, you're not watching something either on television or your computer screen or your phone or your, and to be solitary and just to, um, to sink within your feelings and to sort things out. We don't have that opportunity or we don't take that time. Um, driving does that for me and it makes the world much clearer <laughs> to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gary, it looks like uh, we've, we've run out of time. It's uh, been a, a fast moving hour and it, it seems like we could open the door again uh, and, and have you on sometime in, in the not too distant future to find out where you are on your tour and maybe uh, talk about a few different areas we weren't able to discuss. I, I want to thank you for, for taking time out of your busy schedule. You're going to be on the road with Beyond Body Slams, my friend. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, and I want to encourage folks to, uh, if I'm in close to you, 
um, in Atlanta, Tampa, Orlando, Louisville, Asbury Park, New Jersey, Queens, New York. Um, come on out to my stage show. Um, tickets are at eventbrite.com. If you want more information about where I'll be appearing, uh, best place to find me online is my Facebook page, and that's my initials, GMC, the number four, real, GMC for real. So come on out. We're going to have a fun time. We're going to celebrate being a wrestling fan. Thank you so much, Mr. Capetta. And Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I said before, you're always welcome. If we can work out some time uh, when you're, you know, some downtime on the schedule, man, again, say no more. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. For Gary Michael Capetta, I'm Glenn Broggett. You've been listening to Rasslin' Memories on Pioneer 90.1.